Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Johnji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. P.T. Barnum wasn't exactly a humble guy. He called his famous Big Top Circus the greatest show on earth. But a show like his doesn't just pop into existence. You have to build it. You've got to travel the world, assemble the freak show, buy the elephants and lions, train the trainers, pay the clowns, and then pack all of that craziness onto a train. But when he stood on top of Mount Washington, the tallest mountain in the northeastern United States, it took his breath away. He called this simple peak, this barren summit, the second greatest show on earth. But what he might not have realized is that this experience had been carefully constructed, just like his circus. The wild, untouched, uninterpreted, unmediated scenery is nothing. It's just wilderness. Scenery has to be interpreted, has to be mediated, has to be made to make sense to people. For this next piece, Outside In is taking you back in time to tell you how a group of pioneers turned one of the world's most inhospitable mountaintops into a premier tourist destination. And in so doing, did more than just build some roads and a couple of hotels, but helped construct the very way we experience natural landscapes and mountain vistas. Here to help me tell this story is producer Taylor Quimby. P.T. Barnum didn't really know it when he stood on the summit, but Mount Washington is sort of a meteorological freak show. It sits squarely at the intersection of three major storm tracks in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At less than 6,300 feet, it's barely a hill compared to peaks in the Rockies, the Alps, or the Himalayas, 
And yet, Mount Washington is routinely placed alongside Everest and K2 as one of the deadliest in the world. In the winter, the climate is Arctic, literally. Even in the summer, warm, sunny temperatures can drop suddenly to freezing. In the year 1900, a man named Bill Curtis, a big, burly guy, sometimes called the father of American amateur athletics, died in an ice storm near the peak. An ice storm in June. In total, nearly 150 people have met their end on or near Mount Washington, usually because of poor planning. And then there's the record. On April 10th, 1934, five men were camped inside a small weather observatory on the peak when a massive storm swept in. Also witnessing the storm were nine cats. Observer Sal Palukia wrote about the storm in his logbook. I dropped all other activities and concentrated on observations. Everyone in the house was mobilized as during a war attack and assigned a job. It was during that storm that the crew witnessed what was then the highest wind speed ever recorded, 231 miles per hour, which is as powerful as an F4 tornado. Will they believe it was our first thought. I felt then the full responsibility of that startling measurement. Was my timing correct? Was the method okay? Was the calibration curve right? Was the stopwatch accurate? It was, and the measurement is one reason Mount Washington calls itself home of the world's worst weather. You've stumbled through the fogs of London. You've been soaked in Seattle. But nothing compares to Mount Washington, home of the world's very worst weather. The slogan is debatable, but the weather is pretty nasty, and it has sold a lot of bumper stickers. If you dislike the weather in your home, come to Mount Washington. It's even worse. Today, the mountain is much more of a circus than ever. There's an eight-mile road to the summit that tourists can pay to drive up in the summer. You can also summit by way of the famous Cog Railway, a marvel of engineering that dates back to the 1860s. At the top, there's a giant parking lot, a sturdy communications tower, the old observatory, now a museum, and a three-and-a-half million-dollar visitor center and weather observatory that's built into the side of the mountain like a concrete iceberg. Want to see the summit right now? You can. There's a live stream on the Mount Washington Observatory website that feeds images from the peak 24-7. To find a time before all of this madness, a time when the peak was still just a pile of loose rocks hiding in the clouds, you have to go back almost 200 years. The first known cabin on Mount Washington was built in the early 1820s by a guy named Ethan Allen Crawford. It was about a mile from the summit. Ethan Allen came from a family of total badasses. His father, Abel Crawford, was the first white pioneer to inhabit what we now call Crawford Notch, a gorge that runs along the presidential range's western side. At age 75, Abel became the first person to summit Mount Washington by horse. So badass. But it was his son, Ethan Allen, who carved the bridle path and led him up there. He was a big, burly dude. According to an 1855 guidebook by John Spaulding, people called him the White Mountain Giant. The first display of Ethan's giant strength recorded is of his carrying on his head across the Amanusik River a potash kettle weighing 400 pounds. According to Spaulding, Ethan Allen would catch wild bucks and mountain lions in the forest and carry them home on his shoulders. He trapped 10 bears in a single fall and kept one of them as a pet. He was like the Paul Bunyan of New England. 
Ethan Allen and his dad ran an inn in Crawford Notch and were the first guys to take tourists up Mount Washington. Travelers were probably just as excited to see the White Mountain Giant as they were to see the White Mountains themselves. Step right up, folks, for a chance to see the bear-taming, bobcat-slaying, kindly and compassionate colossus, Ethan Allen Crawford. In the early 1800s, tourists were few and far between, maybe a dozen a year. But in the 1820s, a medical scare started to sweep the nation, and the Crawfords were perfectly poised to cash in. There begins to be a discussion both in the medical press and then in the sort of public press, about how, you know, taking time off from work might be good for you. Uh, it could refresh you. Uh, you would be better at your job. This is Cindy Aaron, by the way, a professor of history emerita at the University of Virginia. People began to worry that middle-class men were suffering from what was called brain fatigue. Brain fatigue. There were fancy resorts popping up all over the place, in places like Newport, White Sulphur Springs, Saratoga. But... The problem with vacations for 19th century Americans uh, is that vacationers were at leisure, allegedly, and leisure held all sorts of dangers. You might be tempted to drink, to gamble, because they were like bowling alleys at these places. Bowling alleys. So because there were these dangers at these fashionable resorts, what you find in the last half of the 19th century is all sorts of vacations, uh, types of vacations emerging where middle-class people could take them, but they wouldn't have to worry about the dangers of too much idleness. Idleness. So this is where you get the introduction of historical sightseeing, of professional development trips, and camping. And if you were camping, of course, you couldn't be idle. You had to pitch your tent. You had to go out and forage for food. You didn't have to worry about being at a fashionable resort where you might, you know, meet a handsome stranger or a pretty stranger and start flirting. But camping in the 1800s isn't just about avoiding sex and booze and bowling alleys. It's also about cultivating a sophisticated persona. It's a way of asserting your bona fides. This is Dona Brown. She wrote a book about New England tourism in the 19th century. It's a way of saying I am an, a well-educated but also a sensitive human being. I'm a person who understands scenery, who values non-monetary things, who values culture, who values art and spiritual experiences. You can imagine why, for these early tourists, Mount Washington was ideal. It was of historical interest as the tallest peak in the Northeast. It was aesthetically valuable because of the view. And it was physically demanding enough to feel like a respectable form of vacation. And should the mood strike, you could still do a little surreptitious flirting in one of the many Crawford Notch inns. The commercial development of the White Mountain region really gets started in the 1830s. And by the 1850s, you can start to see these very large-scale hotels, many of them uh, funded or sponsored by railroads. In other words, this is when the construction of the second greatest show on Earth really gets underway. In 1804, the 10th New Hampshire Turnpike shortens travel time between the Connecticut River Valley and Portland, Maine by a full two weeks. The road runs straight through Crawford Notch where Ethan Allen and his dad Abel were living. In 1819, Ethan Allen finishes the first bridle path up Mount Washington, significantly lowering the bar for who can get to the top and how hard it is to summit. Other kinds of infrastructure that you might not think about, too, like guidebooks, become 
uh, very highly organized and commercialized in the 1850s, uh, sort of almost on the same trajectory as the, as the physical infrastructure. In 1825, Gideon Davidson publishes The Fashionable Tour, a travel guide that popularizes travel from Saratoga Springs up to Niagara Falls and then back down to Boston. Later, he amends his guidebook to include a visit to the White Mountains. The emotions which one receives from the grand and majestic scenery which surround him here are utterly beyond the power of description. There is no single object upon which the eye rests and which the mind may grasp, but the vast and multiplied features of the landscape actually bewilder while they delight. Especially by the 1850s, the guidebooks give these extremely explicit instructions. Never have you felt these feelings before, it'll say. You know? <laughs> this is the feeling you feel as you stand before the awesome nature of this environment, you know? <laughs> it's like, really? I do? <laughs> So at the same time the physical infrastructure is being built by the capitalists, artists, poets, painters, and thinkers, they're building up the ideas and the feelings that we associate with these places. In 1851, the Grand Trunk Railroad announces a plan to provide rail service to Gorham, New Hampshire, a town that will later be known as the Gateway to the White Mountains. Hotels spring up to accommodate tourists, towns in the area swell in size, Mount Washington is ready to hit the big time. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. In the summer of 1852, Joseph Hall and Lucius Rosebrook built a hotel on top of Mount Washington. Its four-foot-thick walls were made of stone boulders blasted from the mountain's summit. The roof and sheathing were made from wooden boards carried eight miles up the bridle path by horses and men. Rosebrook himself carried the front door up on his back. To keep the roof from blowing off, they draped four two-inch-thick chains over the hotel and anchored them into the bedrock with heavy bolts and cement. Rosebrook and Hall called their hotel the Summit House. Thirty hungry hikers arrived two days before the hotel was ready to open. Rosebrook and Hall had food, but no utensils, so they and their wives carved spoons and forks out of wood. In the few short weeks before the hiking season came to a close, they made around $2,200. Which, in 1852, was worth, like, way more. They came back the next spring to find their hotel had survived, but their celebration was short-lived because a couple of no-good copycats decided to build another stone hotel literally yards away from the Summit House. A guy named Samuel Fitch Spaulding duplicated their design. Rocks, chains, the whole bit. Except his hotel was bigger. And it had a cooler name. It was called the Tip Top House. 
For one very tense year, the Summit House and the Tip Top House competed, kind of like a McDonald's that's right across the street from a Wendy's. But in 1854, the hotels joined forces. That year, Sam Spaulding's son, John, penned a White Mountain guidebook that would double as a brochure for his family's expanding mountaintop venture. These two houses are unitedly managed by a company of hardy mountaineers who spared no pains to make this famous resort a true home to the admiring stranger. Ye who would enjoy the sports of stream and forest, come to these mountains. Of course, the guidebooks don't mention the downsides of vacationing atop of Mount Washington. In one account, a group of hikers struggled to get to the top of the mountain during an August storm. When they arrived at the Summit House, the temperature was only 9 degrees, and that was next to the stove. It was 6 degrees in the dining room. Sometimes, guests would plan to stay for a night, only to be trapped on the summit for days before the weather cleared up enough for them to get down the mountain. But still, these sophisticated tourists came from Boston and Portland, Maine, from New York and Philadelphia, and they asserted the hell out of their bona fides. If you look in the, in the guest registers at the Crawford House um, early on in the 1830s, it reads like a kind of list of all of the greatest writers and artists of the United States in the first half of the 19th century. It's like, you know, Hawthorne was here and... You know, Thoreau was here and all these different kinds of people who become important politicians or important cultural figures. From what some of the visitors were writing in the guest books, you can argue that people were taking their cues from the poets and the philosophers. On July 17th, 1854, Mary Huntington composes this. Space, thou art pure and boundless expanse for golden globes to make their mountains in. Room, where all bodies mentioned may begin, where planets wheel along in merry dance and comets voyage on in wild careers. But just like today, some people haven't gotten the word that climbing a mountain is supposed to be transcendent. Some just thought this was a damp, drafty, noisy hotel. It's Jampers. I'd as soon sleep in a swamp. And when one gets up in the morning, his clothes hang about him like a woman's gown with now skirts. If ever I'm the bottom again, may the devil sweep me if I climb these rocks another time. Both of these entries were written a year before white men first stumbled across what would later become Yosemite National Park. Yellowstone wouldn't be explored for another 15 years. The American Civil War, hell, the invention of the bicycle was still seven years away. And already, Mount Washington had been conquered, packaged, and sold as a true American wilderness. If you look at the process by which developers of White Mountain scenery and White Mountain tourism made White Mountain scenery accessible to people, um, it is a process that is exportable. You can then take it to Yosemite or wherever you want to take it. And when I say made it available, I'm not just thinking about trains and hotels, but I'm thinking about people who write uh, guidebooks or people who publish collections of images or painters who go there and paint images and then sell them that, uh, that make people feel that they can understand the landscape, that the landscape has meaning for them. Wild, untouched, uninterpreted, unmediated scenery is nothing. It's just wilderness.
Of course, that same process that transformed Mount Washington was exported to the West. It's that process that eventually shaped our ideas about the Grand Canyon and Old Faithful that brought us the American road trip and Route 66. And meanwhile, Mount Washington continued to transform until it really was more like P.T. Barnum's Big Top Circus than a scenic escape. First, the carriage road was constructed, then the Cog Railway. Then, in the 1870s, the Summit House was replaced by a mammoth three-story wooden hotel with 91 separate rooms. In 1908, everything but the tip-top house burned down in a huge blaze, and then they rebuilt it all over again. Nowadays, people don't just visit Mount Washington because of the view. They go to see the train or the Old Stone Hotel. They go to see firsthand how New England's tallest mountain became home of the world's worst weather and the second greatest show on Earth. Ye who would enjoy the sports of stream and forest, come to these mountains. Ye who delight to behold the works of nature in their most sublime flights, come to these mountains. Ye who have a love for novelty and a desire for true pleasure, come and behold God's wisdom displayed in the bold outlines of this gigantic monument of his almighty Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Logan Shannon, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Molly Donahue. Maureen McMurray is our executive producer. I want to thank a few people for helping me put this story together, especially Cornelius Alsop. He headed the construction of the awesome Sherman Adams Visitor Center, and he knows personally just how hard it is to build anything on top of Mount Washington. You know, think about carrying a piece of plywood when the wind's gusting to 45 miles an hour every day and it's got hurricane force gusts every three out of ten days his stories are crazy also thanks to jeff like executive director of the new england ski museum and rick russack founder and president of whitemountainhistory.org thanks also to our historical reenactors for this story kevin flynn starsky suave sean hurley maureen mcmurray and me as the voice of obnoxious circus man A quick disclaimer about some of the sound you heard during this story. We weren't able to get up the mountain this spring to capture sound from Washington. Luckily, there are tons of YouTube videos of people braving the mountain's super high winds. So this is really from the summit. But this, which we used as background for some of the piece, was not. Real? Not real. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode by Pottington Bear. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.